an ideal client for you is somebody who values that, who wants more than just what TurboTax has to offer. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this show. Well, for today's episode, we're doing another special edition topic, so to speak. And the reason I do these is that I know so many accountants either are interested eventually in having their own business of some kind, many an accounting firm, or later in their careers, they become interested in having their own business, specifically an accounting firm as well. So for today, we have Alicia Maples joining us for the show. And Alicia was my own business coach for many, many years. I have so much to be grateful to Alicia for. And so I wanted to bring her on the program because she's also worked with several CPAs that I know personally in their own practices, helping them make the practice something that works better for them instead of them simply working for the practice, if you understand what I'm getting at. So often we build a business with the dreams of success and freedom and and all the advantages that you picture with owning a business. But then you end up feeling a little trapped at times because of some less than strategic choices, if you will. Well, Alicia helps self-employed accountants avoid or escape those situations through consulting on many items, actually, including what we're going to talk about today, building your wealth through firing your clients. I know this applies to people with their own practices already primarily, but I figure For those considering having their own practice, if you hear it early on, then maybe you can avoid some mistakes early on as well and not have to go down that painful road. This episode is definitely very heavy on the business education side. And if you do learn something from this episode and you are early on in your career and maybe you are thinking about having your own practice someday, We have some classes that would benefit you. We've been teaching a tax course for entry-level accountants for many, many years, and we started doing it online, of course, the last couple years. But just recently, we made it available not just online, but on demand. So if that's something that interests you, learning taxes at the CPA firm level, but you don't have tax experience yet, then check out our classes at mgrar.com. You'll find some very valuable courses there for you. And as always, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career or accounting organizations that you're involved in, please reach out to me as well. I'm happy to help in any way that I can. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started with today's special guest. Here is Alicia Maples. Well, hello, Alicia. Welcome to the show. Mark, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're welcome. And and I'm excited about this. This is going to be fun, for sure. Well, for the audience, as you know, sometimes we do a slightly different format of a show that still applies to the careers of our listeners, but maybe isn't a career story, so to speak, from an accountant. I have another individual become available for one of these special edition episodes. So today we have Alicia Maples, a former business coach of mine, actually joining us for the program. I speak from experience, seriously, when I say that 
Alicia truly does help business owners approach their business from a different perspective. She challenges your thinking and and she makes you consider different ways of doing things. She's definitely not a a status quo individual. I'm not sure that's even in her vocabulary. And today we have her... Today, we have her on the program because we're going to talk about advice specific to entrepreneurial accountants. She's coached several CPAs that I know personally, so I figured this would be a great episode to put out there for you in case you yourself are looking to have your own practice someday. Well, Alicia, before we get to the advice portions of the episode, because I I know that's going to be most of it, I want the audience to understand a little bit about your own background so they know where you're coming from. How did you get started in coaching in the first place? Such a crazy story. I've had such strange parallel set of career paths. So let me say that I worked in corporate America for almost 17 years. In, the, in a leadership capacity within human resources. And I couldn't wait to leave because the other parallel career path, I've been a serial entrepreneur since I was nine years old. That was the first time that I ever sold anything. And it was such a powerful experience. I made Christmas ornaments and went door to door where I was living in Chicago at the time and sold them. And this whole idea of I could make something and actually get money for it was at nine. It was totally transformational. And so from nine years old, even when I had a highly successful, really well-paying corporate career, I still had side businesses or side hustles, as they say. So I've always had the entrepreneurial spirit. It was a matter of timing. And back in 2007 is when I really felt the calling to leave the corporate world and get started on my own. And that's when I started my consultancy company, which is Brilliant SMB, as in small to medium-sized business. Kelly, I didn't realize time flies. 2007, that's a while back. (laughs) (laughs) It is a while back. Of course, I started when I was 23 years old, but yes, just kidding. Oh, there you go. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So how did you begin working with accountants? I mean, because I know you work with other professionals as well. How did you get into the accounting space? The first accountant that I worked with, I met at a networking function in San Antonio, Texas. And I have to tell you, even though I have worked with tons of different industries, who are product-based and service-based, my absolute favorite client to work with are CPA firms. I've worked with several, one of whom I've worked with for six years, another I've worked with nine years, and kind of have had the privilege of walking the journey of um, startup to growth, to scaling, to getting ready for retirement, and what do we do with this? So I love working with accountants. But to answer your question, the first accountant I worked with, I met at a networking function and I loved the process and the organization of the business, the deadlines, the systems, all of that so much that she referred me to another accountant and I found, well, there's some similarities here in terms of how profitability is not being maximized. And then I got referred by that person to another CPA firm. And again, I saw lots of similarities. So now I do have a system that I use specifically for accountants and 
That's why I'm so excited to be on the show with you. Wonderful. Well, thanks. <laughs> yes, and I, I'm appreciating this time. It is interesting how universal some of the challenges are <laughs> amongst accounting firms. Yeah, all accounting firms are unique in some way, but there's always some universal challenges that, that exist out there. So many of our listeners are early on in their careers or you know, just thinking about accounting as a career, but I have seen just an expanded entrepreneurial interest among people even starting their career, you know, that that's going to be the plan later on, whether it's accounting or, or some other business. But if you were going to give a new startup accounting business advice, you know, somebody was starting their own, what are some of the just critical items you would pass on to that new entrepreneurial accountant? Yes. The first thing that I would say that a new accountant needs to do or somebody who is currently working in a firm and wants to break out and start on their own is this. You need to define very clearly who your ideal client is, who is your target market, who is it that you want to serve. Now, I've worked with enough people in the startup phase that they hear this idea of niching, selecting a target market, and it makes them very nervous. And it feels extremely counterintuitive, like, well, Alicia, what are you talking about? I want to serve everybody. I'm telling you the number one mistake that new business owners make that ends up having to be corrected later on in their firm's life is they were not selective enough about who they chose to work with at the beginning. When you choose a niche, you have the opportunity to dominate that niche, to become known for that niche, to become known as the go-to person for that niche. And that is how your reputation spreads. That is actually how you start doing wealth building. It's a phenomenal thing to do that many people skip over. I made the same mistake myself early on when I first started my consultancy. And almost every client that I have worked with has also made that same mistake. But the good news is it can be corrected. And if you're just starting off, you can start off the right way. I'm curious. I think part of the pushback from people on that is that, you know, I need to pay my bills. I want to pay them sooner rather than later. <laughs> so, you know, and I have the opportunity for this other work as well. Maybe it doesn't fit in the niche, but hey, it's paying work. Do you think that when you make that decision right up front and early, I mean, does it slow your growth? I mean, even though you're slowing, you're, you're growing the right way, does it slow your growth trajectory a little bit, choosing the niche or, or your experience? Have you seen that really that isn't the case? It actually accelerates your growth when you choose when you choose a niche. Now, let me say, just because you have a niche doesn't mean you're not going to accept work from other places, particularly if you're in startup mode and you're a little cash flow poor. So it's not that somebody's going to come to you and say, Mark, I really want to work with you. And you're going to say, oh, wait, you don't fit my niche, so I'm not going to take you. It's not the purpose of establishing a niche, especially at the beginning. The purpose is to really harness your resources 
so that they are focused in a powerful way on the right place. And this is the metaphor that I use when I'm explaining the power of niche. If you think about a crystal as an example, and you hold a crystal up to the sunlight, it does beautiful things. You're going to get rainbow sparkles that dance on the wall, and and it looks beautiful, and it may pass some light through that crystal. But there really isn't a lot of power to that. That crystal is symbolic of trying to be everything to everybody. You're going to look really good, but there's not a lot of power there. Contrast that crystal with a magnifying glass. When you hold a magnifying glass up to the sun, sunlight passes through that magnifying glass. What happens? It creates heat, which creates a fire. And that's what we're doing when we talk about niching. When you select a niche, your ideal target market, you're not just looking beautiful like crystal with light passing through the wall. You actually have the power to start a fire for your brand because you're focusing all of your resources into that one place. Resources being your time, your energy, and of course, also your money. It allows you to speak their language when you have a niche market. You got me on a you got me on a soapbox here. When <laughs> you have your niche identified, all of a sudden you can speak to that niche in a language that they understand. So I'd like to think that because I have worked with so many CPA firms for so long, I'm able to say things that resonate to them, like you've got some clients who are pains in the rear. They are super demanding. They don't pay you on time. They don't turn their information into you on time, yet they're the ones that expect you to have their tax return done, not just by the deadline, but early. And so those clients suck you away from serving the people that do appreciate you, do value you, do pay you timely, do give you their complete information. And that's part of why I have a fire your clients framework that I teach people when we're working one-on-one and that I have in the membership community. But see, that language that I use is very specific to the CPA world. And that's why when I'm able to do things like this with you today, Mark, those words resonate because I have identified that CPAs are my target market. Mm. That answer your question. Yes, no, it does. And I mean, just to, I guess, boil it down a little bit, I think a lot of, and I've learned this from you, so <laughs> just to be totally transparent about it on the podcast, but you know, when, when people hear niche, they're thinking that, oh, I'll never do any other kind of work, never accept any other kind of work. And it's not really that, it's that you're not going to focus on other areas and you're not going to chase other areas. But if it comes to you and it makes sense, Sure, you might help out a good client or, or something like that. It's more of a focus issue. Is that, am 100%. I saying that right? Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You've segued or helped me segue real well here because I wanted to ask you how you define what a bad client is because I know part of it is waiting till the last minute to get you data and, <laughs> and then demanding that the work's done immediately. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking that's not the only thing. Um, How do you define a bad client when you're helping a firm owner, you know, determine who the bad clients are? I mean, yeah, how do you help them define that? 
Okay, excellent question. And I'm going to attack it from two different ways. So I'm going to talk about what is a typical excellent client for a CPA, CPA and hmm. then what is not a good client for a CPA. So an excellent client for a CPA is somebody who values you. So just to give some clarity on that, to your audience, you are a CPA. You're not an entry-level employee at H&R Block. There is a difference. You have done a tremendous amount to be able to be a CPA. And so an ideal client for you is somebody who values that who wants more than just what TurboTax has to offer, but somebody who is looking for advice and looking for guidance and values what you have to say to them. So that's number one. Number two would be somebody who is giving you their information and giving it to you on time. Third would be somebody who is paying you, who is paying you for the value of the service that you are providing to them. So I'd say those are the top three, and there are some other nuances in there depending on your specialty, what you're catering to, et cetera. A bad, in quotes, bad client for a CPA firm can be someone who typically is extremely demanding. These are people that wait until the last, the very last minute to give you their information. Their information is not complete. Yet, they expect you to be a miracle worker in the midst of COVID and in Texas, we had what the, uh, the apocalypse, all these other things happening. They don't care. They want you to get them their information by the deadline or before. They tend to be complainers. They tend to be extremely nitpicky. They don't speak to you in a way that indicates that they value you or respects you. And in short, you're spending the majority of your energy answering questions and getting things done for them when they don't have that appreciation or reciprocate with respect. So that's part of the client segmentation process. I have some CPA firms that love working with restaurant owners. That's one of their niches. I have another CPA firm of a client that they avoid restaurants at all costs. They don't like doing the inventory and several other things. So there are additional factors to take into consideration, but I would say that that would paint the picture of some of the baseline fundamentals for doing some client segmentation. Mm. <laughs> Because I don't think it's difficult to identify the people that are bringing in data at the last minute and then demanding miracles and then complaining all along the way. But why do we as accountants sometimes have such a hard time letting go of those clients? I think, you know, in our personal lives, if we were getting that over and over, we just stop returning calls, you know, but it's interesting on the business perspective. So yeah, maybe I'm asking an obvious question, but seriously, why do accountants have such a hard time letting that person go? (laughs) I think it's a good question. And I don't think it's an obvious answer. My experience has been two things. Number one, many of the CPAs, the accountants that I work with, have come from a corporate environment or have worked at a firm that is very large and has a corporate feel. 
And coming from a corporate environment, this idea of you get to be choosy about who you work with and you don't have to put up with your client's misbehavior, that is not something that is enforced or even encouraged in a corporate culture. And so when someone transitions from working in a larger firm to being an entrepreneur, they tend to carry that set of beliefs with them. Like, oh, I have to put up with this kind of behavior. I have to take on any client that comes to me. And the reality is, no, you don't. You are becoming an entrepreneur for many reasons, but one of them is so that you can have a little bit more control over how you work and with whom you work. So it's different, but because we've been conditioned in the corporate world or a corporate culture to think differently, it's a very hard habit to break for many accountants. Okay. So let's jump ahead in the life cycle of a business, of a practice. Let's say that we did you know, leave corporate America or leave a big firm and and we started our practice like a lot of people do. They had a few friends that needed some help and they ended Mm -hmm. up with a collection of uh, quite a variety of clients. Maybe they formed a niche later and they're enjoying that. But at this point, they've been in business, they're paying their bills, but they realize that, hmm, I've got some bad clients (laughs) on the books. I've got the people that are demanding and that I don't enjoy working with, that I don't feel valued by. So how do we get through that? How do we overcome that? How do we get rid of those clients? Uh, great question again, Mark. <laughs> so there are a couple of different ways that you can go about that. I want to lay this as a foundation first, which is whenever you are making a decision to terminate a client relationship, you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can to help that client feel respected. You're leaving them with their dignity and you're treating them with respect. Number one, because it's the right thing to do. But number two, because even though you may not be working with that client any longer, they are still a potential referral source for you. If you end the relationship with them in a way that makes them feel terrible, they can do worse things. They can do damage to your reputation. They can tell people not to use you. They can leave you a one-star review on Google or Yelp or in other places. So you want to make sure that you're doing this, treating that individual with dignity and respect. Now, there are a couple of ways that you can do that. One, I've had some CPAs that have had ongoing client uh, conversations, pardon me, with their clients and have said things like, Mark, if we continue to receive your data two days before the deadline, we're not going to be able to continue to work with you. If you value our working relationship, this is the behavior that needs to change. And then the client doesn't change their behavior, and then it's a conversation or it's a letter, it's not a surprise to them. They understand. I told you that if you didn't make these changes, we weren't going to be able to continue working together. And here it is. Another strategy that that I've coached my CPAs to do is to 
have a conversation with the client and say, Mark, I just want to let you know, we've got some exciting changes coming to our firm and how we are working with our clients. Stand by because in a week or so, I'm going to send you some information that you can take a look at. And this process is important because you're planting a seed. You're letting the person know that change is coming. Then the second is either a phone conversation or an email that says, Mark, here is how we are working with our clients moving forward. What you put in the body of this email can range from, we expect a 50% payment up front, 100% payment up front. Our tax returns are due six weeks before the deadline. It can be whatever behavior it is that you're trying to reinforce, all right? You put this in the email and say, this is how we are working to, We are working with our clients moving forward. This rep- represents a big, exciting change for our firm that will allow us to go deeper and stronger to serve you better. If you are still interested in working with us, then here is a link to an online form where you can put your information in and we will let you know if we choose you as a client. Now, if you have a client where money has been the biggest misbehavior and they see that you're asking for money up front, the beautiful thing about this process is they deselect themselves. So you may not even need to fire them. They just may say, hmm, I'm out. I'm not going to do this. If the misbehavior is submitting their information by a certain deadline, and historically they haven't done that and are not willing to do that, they may deselect themselves as a client. But those are the two strategies that I advocate and have been very successful with my CPAs. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting how there's similarities between coaching and Unfortunately, having to terminate an employee, mm. <laughs> you know, and a client as well, you know, it's because you don't want it to be a surprise, you know, when you get there. So that yeah, that's intriguing. That is intriguing. I'm cheating a little bit here because you know we've had these conversations before, but as I remember, when a firm or a, a an owner of a firm goes through this process, there's clients that definitely fall in the bad client bucket. There's clients that definitely fall in the good client bucket. I love these people. But then there's a bucket in the middle sometimes. And I don't know how often that bucket in the middle gets used, but the ones that we're on the fence about, you know, we're not sure. I like this about them, but then there's this. How do you help a firm owner decide which way to go with those clients? What are some of the questions you ask or some of the determination factors that you give them to to figure out what to do with that middle bucket? Oh, I love that question. Because what happens when we first start doing the client segmentation process is you're right. The A-level client, super easy to identify. The really bad C-level clients are easy to identify. The majority of segmentation, my clients put into what I call the middle ground, what you call the middle ground, the B-level client. And it's just kind of a first pass, uh, first pass. And what we do when we're evaluating is I help my clients make some tough decisions. So is this person really a B or are they really a C? And what we'll do is we'll look at 
some hard data. And this is one of the reasons why I love working with CPAs. When I work with creatives, asking them to do a spreadsheet is like asking them to pull their hair out of their head. But CPAs, it's a no-brainer. So we look at some hardcore data on the people that they've put in the B column and look at what they have brought in in terms of revenue. We have some conversations about the type of treatment that they have received from those clients. And then we look at, and this is really critical, Mark, the potential for deeper levels of service. So this person who is a B client, what kind of potential do they have for additional revenue? What other services can we bring to them? Do they have a restaurant? Do they have a side business? Is this just an individual? Do they have family members that also are in need of assistance and also in need of help? So we evaluate typically those three things to say, all right, this person is currently a B client. Do they have the potential of becoming an A client? And if they do, then what kinds of conversations do we need to have with them to get them there to be an A client? Then we look and see, all right, did we put them in the B column just really as a cop-out because we don't want to make a hard decision? And then usually we'll have a more even field of A's, B's, and C's. The goal with the B's is to up-level them to an A. You will always have some B-level clients. They're not perfect. They're not the greatest, but they're there and they're steady. I also want to add You will also always have at least one C-level client. Sometimes you've got clients that you don't like, that you really can't let go of because maybe they're a family member of an A client, or maybe they're on the board of an A client. There may be something happening where for whatever reason, they're an outlier and you have to keep them even though you really don't want to. But the goal is to eliminate as many of those as possible. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. That's interesting that on the first, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but on the first pass that most of them end up in the B bucket. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) I can relate because, well, there's this is good. There's that this bad. So yeah, that's interesting. Wow. Okay. No, thank you. That's some really good practical advice. Yeah, that will help people for sure. I wanted to ask you about a couple employment kind of related questions because I, obviously that's my field, but before we get to the the last three questions I end every show with, but so a large part of our audience is early in their careers, but but I know from speaking Mm -hmm. with people that we have audience members that are much later in their careers and run firms and that kind of thing. What issues do you see retaining bad clients causing for firms from a a staff standpoint? You know, how does it affect the firm overall? Do you feel like it affects the staffing? What are your thoughts on that? 100% it affects. It, It affects everything. I can tell you that I walked into a firm and the issues they were having because they had so many clients that were not the right clients. And I'm going to add this as well, Mark. We train people how to treat us. And so this particular firm had actually trained, and that's especially true of our clients. We train our clients how to treat us. So the combination of having 
really bad clients and having allowed these clients to misbehave badly for so long resulted in an environment where surprisingly there was not high turnover. However, the culture was palpably stressful. It was just awful. And this is why the owner brought me in. It was a small firm of about six people in total. And they were so stressed and unhappy. They were cursing at each other, like across the hall. Somebody could be sitting in the lobby and they would be shouting at each other from office to office. They wouldn't even pick up the phone to do it or walk over to the office and shut the door. Everyone was so stressed and so tired from the long hours and from the treatment they were receiving that they were taking it out on each other and they were taking it out on the clients. They were also taking it out on the owner as well. You know, I'm happy to say in that example that after just two years of working with them and incidentally in that firm, there were hardly any vacation days. That place transformed. All of a sudden, the employees realized that the owner cared about them and about how they were being treated. The owner cared about their need for time with family. And because they saw that from their owner, they gave more in terms of their discretionary effort at the office. It was just a radical 180 because they let go of the clients that were not good for them. They were able to go deeper with the clients that were, which is why this is called build your wealth by firing your client. And the firm owner was actually able to start offering, in addition to vacation time, two weeks off at the end of the year, every year. It was, it was a complete transformation. So yes, this leads to burnout. It leads to hostility, animosity, lots of call-ins. If you've got employees that are calling in sick a lot, heads up, they're trying to get a break. Or the stress is manifesting somehow in their bodies. But yes, this absolutely has a massive impact on the culture, morale, and the productivity of the office staff. Yeah. Yeah. Accounting is one of those fields, and maybe I'm, I'm sure a lot of fields are like this, where sometimes there's extra effort required. And managing that is important. But it's a whole lot easier if you if you like the people you're working with and you like the clients you're working with <laughs> you know, to put in that extra effort versus, yeah, if, if it just wears you down. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, last question before we wrap it up with the final three questions, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is fair, but I am curious, since much of our audience is early on in their careers, they may be at a staff level or maybe a senior staff level at a firm. What if they perceive that, gosh, I like the people I work with, but we got a lot of bad clients. Any advice for how to manage up for them, you know, how to be a part of the solution instead of just having to sit there and hope that it changes? (laughs) Oh, gosh, that's a tough one. It really is because it's difficult at an employee level to influence the culture where you work. I would say speak the language that your managing partners speak. 
So if what's important to them is growth and profitability, take a case study to them of how much time you had to spend or admins had to spend chasing down information from one of these C-level clients. Translate that into how many hours you could have spent billing somebody else for more work. Take that information to your managing partners and propose that a change be made with that client. Request permission to have a conversation with that client, such as, if this behavior continues, we're going to have to make a change in our working relationship. But the most important thing is to get into the minds and the heads of your managing partners Understand what is important to them, what is the language that they speak, what are the firm's values, and then if you can construct your case speaking in that language, there is a much greater chance that they will hear you and possibly make some changes. Those are some good thoughts. Yeah, think about it from their perspective and their side. Use their language. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. If you go to them and say... So-and-so is a pain in my rear, and I am tired of getting 100 emails from them. Your managing partner isn't going to care about that. That's not speaking their language. You're talking about your pain, which is valid, but that's not going to be enough to impact change. Sure. Well, I do end every show with the same three questions, and I think it does apply, you know, even on special edition episodes because it's just, it's fun. (laughs) It's just a lot of consistency (laughs) across the shows as well. So we'd probably better get to those in in the interest of time and everything. The first one's usually the easier one. From a career perspective, your own career, what's been your proudest moment? My proudest moment is when I made the decision to leave the safety net of my regular paying job and go out on my own and fulfill my calling and my purpose. In some respects, it was an easy decision because it's what I love to do. In another respect, it was tough because I was making a lot of money. I was doing really well. I had, quote, all the things, but I came to realize that all those things were really golden handcuffs and I needed and wanted something different. So actually making that change over 14 years ago was the proudest moment in my career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's hard to let go of something good, even though you know something great (laughs) is out there. Yeah, it is difficult. Well. Second question, or or really more of a request, I guess. Tell us about a lesson that you've learned the hard way. And and the more you can tell us about (laughs) why that was hard, and uh, the better, because obviously that's how we learn from things. Oh, goodness. The reason I'm cracking up is because I'm I'm sitting here going, what did I not learn the hard way? Part of the reason why I'm so passionate about what I do, Mark, is because I did not have a mentor. I just knew that I was smart and determined and I was going to make it happen. And so I made every mistake in the book. So asking me to pick one, let's see. At the risk of sounding redundant, I would say not being pickier about who I worked with at the very beginning. And the reason that was such a fatal error for me 
is about a year and a half into my consultancy, I had a dream come true, which was the opportunity to have a feature in the local business journal. A feature for me as a newbie, that was a massive deal. And the interview went so well. I was pumped up. I was excited. And then the interview ended with the journalist saying, okay, Alicia, this has been great. I got all the information I need, except I need the names and contact info for three of your clients so that I can call them and hear their testimonials about how much you radically transformed their businesses for them. And I said, sure, no problem. And I hung up the phone and Mark, no lie, I started crying. Because I didn't have any. I didn't have any success stories. And I didn't have any success stories because I took anybody and everybody on as a client. And this coaching consulting process is work. It's not easy. It's a process. And so the people that I said yes to gave up midway. They weren't willing to follow through and see this process to the end. They stopped short of their greatness. And so here I was with this opportunity to be featured, and I didn't have three people to send to this journalist. And that was the beginning of the transformation internally that made me say, I am going to run my business differently. I am only going to work with winners. I am going to be highly selective about who I work with because when I get the next opportunity, I want to have at least 10 people who can speak to what I was able to help them do. Now, fortunately, I had three friends that I was coaching for free and they did have some transformations and I was able to send them over to that particular journalist, but that was a lesson I learned the hard way. And I'm telling you, once I made that change, I have not looked back since. Mm. That's a great thing that he asked you for that. Because otherwise, you, you may have had to learn that later on. That would have just been more delay. Wow. 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 Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What's the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Ooh, I like this question. I wish I could tell you who said this to me. This was a long time ago. I hired many coaches and most of them were not good, but this guy was fantastic. And he was also so expensive. I could only afford at that point in my life to hire him for two one-hour sessions. I'm going to tell you, those two one-hour sessions to this day are still some of the most powerful uh, work that I've done and information I received. And this is what he said to me. My question to him as a newbie professional was, what do I charge? I don't know what to charge for this. I came out of corporate. Here's how much I was making. I have no idea what my price point should be. And he said to me, Alicia, write this down. The only function that price serves is to set an expectation of value. I'm just going to repeat that. The only function that price serves is to set an expectation of value. And so to your audience, the question that I want to ask is, as you are pricing your products and your services, what expectation of value are you setting 
for your prospects and for your clients. Wow, that's powerful. And you paid a lot to get that and we're getting it for free. That is just awesome. (laughs) 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 Wonderful. Well, thank you. This has been a fun conversation. I'm reminded of a lot of things and, and I've learned a few more in this conversation. So that's wonderful. If people want to look you up, find you online, you know, get in touch with you, what's the best place to find you, Alicia? Thank you for asking that, Mark. The best place would be at my website, which is brilliant, SMB, as in small to medium-sized business. Dot com. So brilliantsmb.com. There you're going to find information about me, my membership community, lots of blog posts, and also the free five-day credibility challenge that I have coming up. Is that free for a limited time or is that something <laughs> that people are listening to this six months from now? <laughs> I want to make sure I put this in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking that clarifying question. So the credibility challenge, it will happen multiple times throughout the year. Uh, it's happening, I think this is airing right before it on Monday, September 20th. And it's five days. Give me 20 minutes every day for five days. And I'm going to show you how to harness the power of testimonials to boost your online credibility and drive your ideal customers to you. I'm giving you worksheets, checklists, templates, scripts, all kinds of things. Uh, You'll also have the opportunity to ask me any kind of question that you have that I'll be answering live. It's going to be a lot of fun, but more importantly, really transformational to help you build your online authority. Wonderful. Yes, actually, that will be going live about a week after this show. So yeah, that is perfect. Perfect time. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you again for spending the time to do this. I always enjoy speaking with you and <laughs> I really appreciate, you know, getting to share you with our audience, so to speak. Oh, Mark, this has been such a pleasure and it's wonderful speaking to you. And I really hope that your client, your audience receives something beneficial from this and that they have the courage to take the step to fire their C-level clients so they can build their wealth with their A-level clients. Well, that was my interview with Alicia Maples, my former business coach for many, many years. I've always appreciated that Alicia doesn't sugarcoat things. I mean, she's kind, about advice, but she certainly doesn't sugarcoat things. She tells you what you need to hear, and the advice is always practical and actionable, if you will. She doesn't deal in just theory, and I've, I've always appreciated that about her, and I think that came out in this interview. And then secondly, I'm not sure if she intended to go there or not, but I definitely wanted to have the conversation of not just the bad effects that keeping bad clients can have on a business owner, but the bad effects they can have on the team and the staff as well, because I think that's a very important aspect to consider. Many times as business owners, we hold on to a client just because we we feel like we should, or we feel like somehow we owe them something, or it's a difficult conversation to have. And we neglect to realize the effect that that has on our team. And it's not intentional on our part, but it is something that happens. So I think that was a very important conversation to have. 
And I appreciate that she was willing to have it on this podcast interview. Thank you very, very much. Well, that wraps up another episode of Where Accountants Go, the Accounting Careers Podcast. I know I've said this many times, but seriously, if there's anything I can do for you in your own career, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'm very findable on LinkedIn. Just search for Mark Goldman CPA and I'll pop right up. Well, we will see you all next week with another episode full of accounting career related content. Until then, we'll see you soon. After all, this is Where Accountants Go. Where Accountants Go.